So our thoughts are always ours to change. We can accept them, we can reject them, we can adjust them, we can revise them. We can even get rid of the peskiest freeloaders, but we have to understand that it comes down to how we perceive things. Welcome to the Spiritually Hungry Podcast. Let's start with a story. I love your story. I know, I haven't said one in a while. I know, I was getting sad. You're going to make fun of this one, I can already feel it. Oh, really? Should I? You tell me. Do I have permission? You don't, do you ever wait for my permission? I'm waiting for your permission oh. now. Once upon a time, a boy named... That, yeah, I could, <laughs> yes or no. You're going to do what you want to do. No, only if you sure. want me to do it. Are you ready? Once upon a time, a boy named Isaac worked really hard and saved up enough money to buy a house. The house he bought had a beautiful finished basement, but Isaac didn't need all that space. He didn't have any kids or even a girlfriend. One the, second. Is it a true story? Can you just follow along? <laughs> okay. I have many questions already. But the fact that Isaac couldn't keep a girlfriend is a whole different story that we're not getting into today. So back to the story. Isaac decided to make some extra money by renting out his basement. But the people who moved in never paid him a dime. When the sink leaked, he had it fixed. When the door creaked and the non-paying renters complained, he fixed that too. Now, not only did he have the mortgage of the house to pay for and the insurance, he was also spending a lot of time and energy on maintenance. But because this is a parable... Isaac never evicted them. Hold your, hold your thoughts. Many, many questions. And even more than that, he could hear them. He heard their alarm while he was making his coffee. He heard their TV when he came home from work. So he had a constant reminder that they were there rent-free. Isaac was annoyed from this from the time he woke up in the morning until the time he went to sleep. This couldn't be allowed to go on, right? Absolutely. Nope. The freeloaders lived in Isaac's basement to this very day. Today, we're going to talk about how we're not all that much different than Isaac. Do you see where I'm going, Michael? I think I do, yes. Because, I still have many questions. I won't raise them right now. Though. Because we all have freeloaders that we let live inside our thoughts. They take up space, sap our resources, and don't give us anything of value in return. Who are these freeloaders, you may be asking? Doubts and grudges, just to name a few. If the bad news is that we're all prone to letting these freeloaders take up the space in our thoughts... The good news is that we're imminently capable of changing our thoughts. I can go on and on. Did you want to interject for a second? <laughs> well, well, you're I think, lucky I didn't name the kid Michael. I'll tell you yeah, that much. Should, next time it should definitely be Michael. <laughs> uh, but as I was thinking about uh, this podcast, and of course we want to talk today about how do we diminish, if not, as you said, ultimately completely rid ourselves of these thoughts the the two that i focus on which unfortunately unfortunately this is where most of the world is focused on anxiety and depression and i think there's a lot that from a spiritual perspective uh both insight and understanding that can be but i think what you just said now is something you said it offhandedly maybe but i wonder how many people who experience these thoughts you know anxiety doubt and certainly depression how many of them actually believe that they are eminently capable of ridding them? I think part of the problem, and maybe this is the right place to start, is the internal belief that I can absolutely rid myself, certainly of the level of fear and anxiety and certainly sadness and or depression that I have. And unless you believe that, unless you really believe that, I think it will be unlikely that you'll make real, real inroads in removing them. So uh, that's, I think that's, it's important to start there because I don't think 
that that is something that most people accept about themselves. And I think even about, I'm thinking even, you know, obviously there's a level different, obviously it's a whole uh, gamut of, of how much each one of us in, is, is inflicted by these, afflicted by these. But the reality is every single one of us has those doubts, fears, and again, it gets to levels of anxiety sometimes, it gets to levels of sadness, it gets to level of depression. But unless we actually accept that I have the power, I have the ability to completely rid myself of these thoughts, nothing else will matter. Nothing, no, no there is no second step. So help. I think that where you start before getting to the place of being able to eradicate them is to realize how much we soak and sponge up the things around us. We react to pretty much everything, especially negative things that happen, right? And those things then create anxiety and doubt and fear and worry. So it's, it's first of all, stopping and saying, where do I react? How quickly do I react in things? And are the things I react to real or are they illusionary, right? So if you start to change the lens from which you view your experience of life, then your experience will actually change. And I gave this example recently for a talk we did. I thought it was such a great example, even before my own very eyes, right? I like when things happen where I'm like in real time able to say, okay, I see the illusion and I don't fall for it. So this is one of those times Miriam, our oldest daughter and I were, you know, kind of exploring the city. We're still, we've lived in New York 10 years, but there's always things to discover, rediscover and new things popping up. And, and that's what we love about living here. I mean, there's, it's hard in a lot of ways, but that's really like the fun aspect. It really feeds that curiosity. So we are in the East Village and um, I like when I'm with Miriam to let her be my ways navigation uh, person. So anyway, she's on her phone. She's like, oh, Sex in the City, the house where it was filmed, you know, where Carrie Bradshaw lived. It's just like six blocks from here. We were walking home anyway. I'm like, okay, yeah, let's go. We're walking and this, that. We're going down the block. We finally get to the place. And I see like six people walking in front of us. And they're walking with intention. So I'm thinking, okay, they're going to the same place we're going to. Sure enough, there were a group of a party of four and there was a party of three. And then it was me and Miriam. So the first party kind of walked a little bit past the brownstone. The other people, the three of them, she stood right away in front. She made it very clear she wanted to take a photograph there. And Mira and I were kind of just like, oh, is this it? And then we were like, already not that enamored because there was a chain and there's a donation box. And it's, it's like telling you, you know, if you take a picture here, you must give. And it was already not inviting. I'm like, okay, this really isn't quite very sexy. In fact, it's unsexy. I don't see Aiden. I don't see Mr. Big. I don't see Carrie Bratch. I like, this is not. But anyway, we're like, okay, we're here. We'll take the picture. But that woman's already standing there and she's like, I'm taking a picture. She made it very clear she wanted to move back. I, and she wasn't that nice. I noticed it. We moved back, whatever. But we're just still talking about this donation box between us, right? The person that got there first, that party of four, she said the same thing to them and he didn't like it. <laughs> So he starts to answer back and he calls her uh, all kinds of names. And he's like, you know, you can say it in a nice way. And he walks off kind of, and he's upset and he's talking about her. And right away, she's looking at me for validation. Like she wanted me to make me feel, make her feel better about this. And I, I saw her looking at me in my peripheral vision. And instead I look at Miriam and she's looking at me and I'm thinking, there's no way I'm engaging in this. This is so, this is an illusion. I don't know what's happening here. It's not my movie. It's not my story. Then that man comes back, he spits on the floor in front of her, but it was really landed in front of us. It was just like this thing out of a movie. And it was so odd and ridiculous that 
we didn't fall for it, right? But I think it's an example of the illusionary world we live in. And if you don't choose your responses or even choose what to pay attention to, then you're left with these negative feelings that kind of become overwhelming and pervasive. And you then don't think that they can be eradicated because they've been occupying your house for so long. So our thoughts are always ours to change. We can accept them. We can reject them. We can adjust them. We can revise them. We can even get rid of the peskiest freeloaders, but we have to understand that it comes down to how we perceive things. Right. I think that's a very important point. Like you said, often anxieties and, and, and sadness are an accumulation. It's not usually not just one thought. It's just maybe one thought over time. It's certainly an accumulation of, of thoughts. And one of the things that I really try to train myself in, and you know, hopefully I'm successful at it, but I think it's important to live life taking almost nothing seriously. Let me, let me be clear about that. There's, there's probably, obviously, what, what I do with my life, I, I take very seriously. How, how I direct my life, I take it very seriously. You take your life's work seriously. My life's work seriously, exactly. Because I think it is, it's beyond me, and it's, it's clearly very important, and this is true for every, every one of our listeners. But we try not to take ourselves too seriously, or other people's... It. Exactly, or other people's. Not, I would say. I would say there's a good, more than ninety percent of the things that are happening in our lives should not, cannot, and this is one of the ways you have to train yourself to not take it seriously. You know, the ego, that that part of us which is not our friend, right? What's what's your what's your T-shirt? Your ego is not your amigo. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, the ego wants us to say, oh my God, that is so important. This person, again, just did that to you, or that person just said that about you. There's a whole, if we if we really broke down, and it might be a good exercise for many of our listeners, you know, today, yesterday, what are the things that really upset you? And, and how many of them would you put in the category absolutely important, meaning they have to do with you, your relationship with your family, or your best friends, or your health? They would, they would really severely alter the quality of your life. Exactly. Like, let's just put it under that umbrella, right? right? right. And that's that's less than ten percent, right? And and let's assess what are the what is the ninety percent that you allowed to upset you, make you sad, give you anxiety. Those freeloaders, in absolutely. Your basement. And 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 I think it's important. I often like to go at this beginning ethological mind, which is we give too many things that are completely unimportant, great levels of importance, and unless you're training yourself to live more lightly, I would say, right? Which means take all those things that are not really that important, that we take so seriously. Unless you're able to diminish the parts of what happens to you, what, what comes into your life, that you take seriously, then yeah, of course, of course, you'll be, you'll be upset very often, you'll be disappointed very often, you'll be sad very often, but, but about stupid things at the end of the day, well, about it's stupid like, things. It's that twenty eighty rule. So 20% of what you put your time and energy to create 80% of your stress or your joy, or it depends what that 20% is, right? So if you spend 20% of your time with ridiculous things that cause anxiety, all these negative things, then 80% of it is not going to be yeah, great. And I would use it the other way, which is that 80% of the things that we do take seriously are not, so it would be 20 I, I think it's even less than that. Like I would say, I think it's 90-10. But I think it's a really important point, and I would ask all of our listeners to really take an, an opportunity to look at something that happened this past week that upset you, disappointed. It doesn't have to be, you know, something that you know really uh, took you off track, but you know, enough. 
and then try to take that in 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 a true view of is this part of the ten percent of of the things that happen in my life that are so important, or is it the silly ninety percent? So to this point, um, you know, Rumi's one of my favorite authors poets and he wrote something called the guest house uh, and i want to share it it's just i can't read it enough even it's not the house guest it's the guest house because when i read it the first time i was like oh the house guest and i was like no no it's a guest house this being human is a guest house every morning a new arrival a joy a depression a meanness some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor welcome and entertain them all even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house, empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. So we're meant to embrace every difficult situation that comes into our lives, every interaction, and understand that they're there for our greatest good and really invite the guest house. But the trick here is, and where we get stuck again, is that we forget that we all come from the same source of greatness, right? So we, we underestimate, we don't understand the enormity of our potential, and we get distracted in taking the wrong things seriously. If you really understood your potential, if you could really see it and believe that you could get there, you wouldn't waste a second with things that would hold you back or stunt you, really. But also, I think, I think this poem also points to another very important spiritual teaching, and that is that there's a purpose for our upset. There's a purpose for our sadness. There's a purpose for our our anxiety. And at a foundational level, every moment of sadness, every moment of anxiety is, is telling us something. It's to wake us up, but not to keep us there. Of course not to keep us there, but to wake us up. And I would say probably the most important calling of anxiety, of sadness, even of depression, is something that that I, I find to be a very beautiful teaching. And that is that the only times you're confused, anxious, is when you're not in the right place. Like I use the example... Well, you're worried about the outcome, so there's a lack of certainty. No, I mean in a deep spiritual level. Uh-huh. I, I don't mean physically, but, but I, I use the example. But physically, you know, we've all had those dreams or times when we woke up and like, where am I, right? Imagine if a person wakes up from a dream, well, terrifying. <laughs> and he suddenly finds himself in an unknown house, in an unknown city, in an unknown village. Very scary. Oh my God, where's my family? What's going on? Why, why? How did I get here? That's what our soul goes through almost every single day. Because if we're not living the truest part of our divine soul, meaning spending our time and effort and mind in bringing forth into this world, and every one of us has their own task and their own job, but I would call light and goodness, but that that could be said in general terms. If we're not doing that, or not doing that enough, the soul is anxious. It's like like that person who wakes up in the house that he doesn't recognize, in the land that he or she doesn't recognize. That's what we're doing to our soul, if we are not, through our lives, bringing it to its right place. So I think it's really, really important to understand, and I think the Rumi poem really says it so beautifully, that... The reason you had a thought of anxiousness today, the reason why you had a thought of sadness today, an experience, an emotional experience of sadness, or fear, or doubt, is because your soul is telling you. Like again, Rumi said, these are these are guides from above. Your, your soul is saying, I'm not in my right place. Meaning, 
I'm not doing with my life what needs to be done. I just I'm not manifesting with my life what needs to be manifested. But you're saying, because obviously this is just if, if the feeling comes unwarranted without, like you just feel down or blue. No, no, no. I think this is, no, no. Well, there's sometimes people feel sad about, legitimately feel sad. Yeah, I'm not talking about the 10%. And also, by the way, I mean, yes. also, what if you feel, the person feels sad and it's really in their subconscious mind something happened the day before and they thought about it. I mean, it's, it's sometimes... I think there's layers and there's levels. I think sometimes it's there to show us something that's in our subconscious mind that we don't have access to that can teach us something. I think no matter what, any negative emotion is a, a tool and uh, an indicator to show you where you need to kind of turn left, turn right, veer a little bit differently. I think that when it comes often and it's not really connected to anything and it's and it's something that's deeper, yes, you're, no matter what your soul needs to learn i'm saying but sometimes the lessons are easier than others yeah sometimes you can get to them more clearly and you can understand yes the 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 lesson in it but regardless regardless of whether it's something that that i can see the lesson from or if it's not the message is always the same change there needs to be change there needs to be movement maybe we're we're spending too much of our thoughts time on the, wrong the silly 90% mm. I think it's really important because, you know, sometimes when we're feeling sad or we're we're feeling anxious, we want to get through it, right? And reality is, yes, of course you want to get through it, but more importantly, you want to change from it in such a way where it doesn't have to come back, or at least not have to come back in the same intensity. But but that line that that every emotion, sorrow, anxious, they're all there to guide us. And as, like you said, sometimes we have to go more deeply into our 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 life and say, okay, what are the things that are causing me? Be this? honest with yourself. But sometimes it's just, I'm just not spending enough time on the great ten percent. I'm not spending enough time directing my life and my thoughts and my words. You know, again, we know people who can spend all day gossiping, speaking about negative things, and then then one day they're, oh my god, I'm so depressed. Why? What happened? How, how, it doesn't make any sense. Well, actually, it does. When a person spends a lot of energy, thoughts, words, actions, in creating chaos, of course, they're going to feel the weight of that chaos, whether through anxiety or sadness or, or depression, of course. And again, I just want to be really careful to take a step back. Of course, it doesn't mean that when a person is depressed, that it's their fault. And of course, there, there's many other layers to it. And of course, there are times to see a doctor, of course, of course. But, but for m- the, most of us, it's important to realize that we are the effect of the sum total of our thoughts, words, and actions. And they do cause a heaviness if if they are the words and the thoughts and the actions that we're awakening are are of chaos or are of negativity. A thousand percent. You mentioned um anxiety, depression, which I know we're gonna go a little bit more into, but I also want to bring up doubt because I think that people don't necessarily understand this idea of doubt, they think that, oh, you know, somebody else might be more knowledgeable or has more experience. And while that may be true, if you need a doctor, go to a doctor, you need a lawyer, go to a lawyer. But there's many times that we have a lot of the answers ourselves and we doubt ourselves. And mostly it's because we haven't cultivated a relationship with self. Because again, we're too busy focused on external things, what people think, things that really don't grow, enhance that connection. So, Kabbalah's perspective on doubt, and I want you to weigh in on this also, 
is that the creator created the channel of light for every need we'd ever have for each person. Meaning from the moment we're born, the creator sees every problem or lack that's going to exist for each of us and creates a conduit to fix or fill that need. So whatever answers to anything we need, we have. And Rav Elimelech said that doubt and lack literally cut off that conduit that's meant to offer answers and solutions to a problem. So when we doubt ourselves, when we doubt the presence of the creator, when we doubt our source, we basically cut off that that conduit, or you can call it intuition, so that then we do walk around very confused and not be able to clearly navigate through life. Right. I, I would. I would. That's a very important teaching, and it's even bigger than than what you said. In that, I would refer to it as the danger of doubt. And the idea is that, like you said, everything that I need, everything that you need, everything that every single one of our listeners needs, is ready for them in any process that one is going through whether it's work, whether it's family, something important a person's trying to manifest to do. But that divine solution, that divine wisdom, that divine answer, is the natural flow that can only be cut off by our doubt. When I have doubt in myself, when I have doubt in this situation coming to a good end for me, if I have doubt in my ability to manifest that, that doubt actually stops that natural flow of light, of answers, of direction of blessings. Because that's how the system set up. Everybody is supposed to experience goodness and blessings, unless we get in the way. Exactly. So, so literally, so so imagine there's the natural state, which is that within which we are completely connected to the source of everything. And therefore, all wisdom and all answers and all blessings are flowing towards us. And then doubt, which means a person saying on a deeper level, right? If I say, let's, I'll use an example. I'm st- I'm starting a business, right? And you know things are going well, but then something happens, and I say, oh my God, maybe this was a big mistake. Oh my God, maybe this is all going to go crumble to the ground, and so on and so forth. What the person is actually saying is maybe I am completely disconnected from the light of the Creator. Maybe there is no blessing in this. Maybe there is no flow of light in this. And that thought... Stops. Literally cuts, literally cuts that flow. Then it can, one can endeavor to try to build that, that channel again. All of this to say that we need to more greatly appreciate the power of doubt and how important it is for us to fight against that natural inclination but that one that has a very detrimental effect for anything we're trying to accomplish and anything we're trying to manifest. Isn't it also similar to the example of people saying, oh, I'm not worthy of love, or I don't love myself enough. I'm not sure I, that the soulmate even exists for me. Maybe I'll be alone forever. And then they wonder why they're alone, because they've actually... And the person could be literally around the corner, right? Absolutely, absolutely. I think it's a very important point, because you'll almost never... I mean, again, I don't want to overgeneralize, and you're the relationship expert, but I don't know if you'll ever find somebody who actually believes wholeheartedly that their soulmate is waiting for them that will not find their soulmate. Almost always when you find somebody who is not in a relationship or has not found their soulmate, it's because they doubt. Right, that it's possible. On some level, at least, if not completely, that it's possible that they're there. And, and that's they're another... deserving of that kind exactly, of relationship. Exactly, because if they're undeserving, they obviously don't believe that it's there, right? Well, funnily enough, I do meet with, I just met with somebody this week, and, you know, very successful, but the the issues are all in relationships. And 
right away. I'm like, okay, let's talk about what you believe and why you believe it. And very often it's what, you know, they didn't like in their father or their mother or what they saw. And they're like, I'm not sure who I want to be in it, right? Even that doubt. I'm not sure what kind of husband I will be or want to be, or what kind of father I will be or want to be because they haven't, they don't have a good idea around it. Right. And that just, and people don't realize it. They don't realize it. Like if I find the one, then everything will come into place, but you've actually stopped it from happening. Absolutely. And also with doubt, I just thought this was really interesting, just on a physical level. Did you know that over time, doubt can have effects like anxiety and depression and serious physical ailments like weight gain, high blood pressure, and chronic fatigue? And it's funny because we've talked about so many different topics on our podcast so far, and it affects all the same things that we need to actually physically survive in this life. Right. Very interesting. And, you know, it's one of the things that I also, I think maybe most of us aren't, completely aware of that the the really the the connection between anxiety and depression that at least you know the current science believes that anxiety precedes depression developmentally let me just think about what you're saying for saying that anxiety precedes depression right Mm -hmm. anxiety most commonly beginning in late childhood or adolescence and depression a few years later in the mid-20s and um, psychologist michael yapko says that the shared cornerstone of anxiety and depression is a perceptual process of overestimating the risk in a situation and underestimating personal resources of coping, which I thought was very interesting. That's the, what the cause of anxiety? Yes, yes. And scientists find that the studies have found that anxiety often proceeds and therefore leads to depression if it's not if it's not addressed. Well, but it makes sense because based on what you just said, if a person is anxious, they don't know, they're worried about the future, the outcome, right? And then the second thing you said about anxiety? That it proceeds? No, no, before that, you said the two things that he that, found. That it, well, developmentally, it proceeds, right? That first, anxiety begins earlier in life, and then it's followed by depression. But basically, if a person is anxious, and they don't feel like they, they're uncertain of the future and they don't ever feel like they can get out of it or there's a solution. Of course, it's going to lead to depression because basically that's a level of giving up. Yes. And therefore, and I like the way he puts it. He says, anxiety is a kind of looking to the future, seeing dangerous things that might happen in the next hour, day, or weeks. Depression is all that mm-hmm. with the addition of, I really don't think I'm going to be able to cope with this. Right. That was the second Maybe part. I'll just give it up. Right. It's a shutdown marked by mental, cognitive, or behavioral slowing. And therefore, he says, Dr. David mm-hmm. uh, Barlow from Boston University says, they're probably two sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. So, and what's interesting was other, and something else you said, which I thought was really important, you know, that we have to be aware when we talk about the importance of breaking through anxiety and sadness and depression, is that we also are influenced by others around us. And therefore, it's important to keep yourself in a company of people who are, if you can, who are happy, who who are not you know, paying too much attention to the 90% of silliness and giving it too much of a standing in our lives. But also the opposite effect, the fact that we have an effect on our friends and maybe more importantly on our children. And there was a really interesting piece by David French who talks about this. We know, unfortunately, I mean, the numbers are kind of crazy where, where the world is today. In 2021, nearly 60% of teenage girls reported feeling persistent sadness. And overall, 44% of teenagers reported persistent feelings of sadness and hopelessness, which is an increase, 
a significant increase in the past few years, and, and the later studies have found it to be getting even worse. But so, a, lo a lot, again, a lot of the, of the studies into this are looking at social media, which I'm sure has a very big part, but he says the following. This is actually from Professor Yapko's uh, uh, research. The largest group of depression or anxiety sufferers are the baby boomers. Mm. Just the largest number. The fastest growing group is their children. Oh, God, that's terrible. They can't teach kids what they don't know. Plus, their desire to raise perfect children puts tremendous pressure on their kids. They're creating a bumper crop of anxious, depressed totally. children. So David French writes the following. Just as there's a depressing familiarity to parents' conversations about their children, there is a similar familiarity to kids' conversations with about their parents. Mm -hmm. I spend much, much of my time traveling to college campuses, both secular and religious, and I hear a similar refrain all the time, something happened to my parents. Sometimes the sh the, they share stories about parents obsessed with their kids' education. More often I hear about parents consumed by politics, and the idea is, I think that that's interesting. They see something happen to my parents. Yeah, yeah. Because often parents are talking about their kids. Something's happening with my kids. Or something happened with my kids. Kids are also saying this about their parents. And what he says: teens do not exist on an island. The connection between parental emotional health and the emotional health of their kids is well established. So he goes on again, and I think which is so important for us, certainly those of us who are parents, but even those of us who are friends to realize that our anxiety and or sadness and or depression not only has an influence on us, but has an influence on everybody around us. And maybe a part, and this is something that he posits, that maybe a part of the pandemic of anxiety and, and sadness and, and depression is also an effect of, not, of, of parents not doing enough in their own lives to remove their anxiety and to take care of their sadness and depression. And he says, it might be worth asking a simple question. How much fear and anxiety should we import into our lives and homes? Forget teens for the moment. Are we proving any more capable of handling the information age? It's a question I honestly ask myself. I know that my experiences online drift into my family life. I know that my anxiety can radiate outward to affect my kids. Our own addictions to alcohol or drugs, yes, but also the information and outrage can devastate our families. Now it's time for us to realize that our hurt can become our kids' hurt. And if we want to heal our children, that process may well start by seeking the help we need to heal ourselves. I often say to people, they ask advice, how do I tell my child about, you know, their parent, if they're divorced, that did da-da-da, or about getting divorced? Like, first, you have to be clear about how you feel about all these things so that you can choose your response and be the example for them. Because they are going to look to you first and foremost, no matter what they hear, to see your response and then decide what theirs should be over and over again. I mean, we've banned the word worry in our house because we have a special little one who tends to be a little bit more worried. And we realize just by saying, oh, I'm worried I'm going to be late. Like, even though we're not anxiety ridden, we don't even use that word, Absolutely. right? It's really about being conscious on that level. And I also met with a, another mom this week, and she is very anxious. She's a very anxious parent, especially. And uh, she can get sad, and she's crying a lot, and all kinds of things. And I said, you know, there's no shame in going on medication if you feel you need it, because your kids are watching. Your children are watching this, and they're sponges right now. They're at that age. And before you know it, it's going to now be their movie in their life as adults and as parents. And I would add, 
you're speaking more about what the kids see and hear. What I like with David French's piece, he's talking about the fact that it, we actually radiate where we are. So even if you don't even, even if you don't even say a word about it and you don't show it, who you are is given over to your to your family, to your friends, to your children. So we have a, certainly as parents, as friends, we have a responsibility to deal with with our own anxieties and and fears because they radiate. No, in I, our home and to our. I'll to our give kids. an example of radiate. So in the morning not a morning person the first hour of my waking i like silence never get it but i'd really like just silence for an hour but anyway that's not the case and so i realized that i often look very very serious in the morning and i noticed it because i see our youngest kind of looking at me for something right and when i started to notice that that she was just staring at me thinking well how what am i radiating like what am i putting off like i look really serious i think i might even look a little bit like upset I hadn't had coffee yet. And then I, then my next thought was, am I teaching her she needs coffee? Like, maybe she shouldn't have coffee when she grows up. And it's just, it's like to that level, right? And I know that that's extreme and maybe, but I think that, I mean, I really care about all these things. So, but it's on, it's even on that level. Like, what am I radiating? Even if I'm just neutral, by the way, what does my neutral face look like? Right. <laughs> it's very funny. I just, you just reminded me of one of my more favorite uh, moments in Seinfeld, the show. Where where George is is sharing that he that he the way he gets people not to bother him is by always looking busy. And they say, "How do you look busy?" He says, "If you looked annoyed and frustrated, <laughs> people think that you're busy." <laughs> so that was his thing. So he makes an annoyed and frustrated face, and everybody thinks he's very, very busy funny. if you don't come and bother him. But yeah, I think it's a very important consciousness for us to have. So actually, I, I wanted to share another uh, tool, which I think is both so simple, but uh, it's a piece by Andrew McCarthy. And he talks about walking is the worst kept secret I know. Its rewards hide under every step. And he says, perhaps because we take walking so much for granted, many of us often ignore its ample gifts. Totally. So he has three or four quotes here, which I'd like to share. But how do we get into walking? Oh, because because it's one of the greatest ways to remove anxiety. You didn't say that. Okay. Well, I just did now. By the way, Honestly, I never appreciated walking until I had the injury and I couldn't walk for nine months. I, every step is like, I'm marveled by it. So Hippocrates proclaimed that walking is man's best medicine. And he said that walking would provide more than mere physical benefits. And he said, if you are in a bad mood, go for a walk. Mm-hmm. If you're still in a bad mood, go for another walk. He was alluding to what so many who came after him would attest. Now, walking not only nourishes the body, but also soothes the mind while it burns off tension and makes our troubles recede into a more manageable perspective. Uh, Kierkegaard agreed when he confessed, I know of no thought so burdensome that one cannot walk away from it. Charles Dickens was even more direct. If I could not walk far and fast, I think I would just explode and perish. I can I honestly relate with every single word that you just read. And he said, and three more, which I think are also very powerful. Uh, a good long walk, or even one not so long, begins to carve out space between my thoughts that allows clarity to rise up through my shoes in a way that no other mode of transport does. The writer Rebecca Solnit writes that walking is how the body measures itself against the earth. Mm, I like that too. And through such physical communion, walking offers up its crowning gift by bringing us emotionally, even spiritually, 
home to ourselves. Mm. And one last one from Henry David Thoreau. I took a walk in the woods and came out taller than the trees. Mm, I love that. And you want to go for a walk, babe? Let's for go. sure. Let's go right now. But I think we should probably end the podcast first. <laughs> um, so another very practical, but unfortunately often underappreciated, not underappreciated and not used enough tool to, to deal with sadness, upset, is to take a walk, as, as all of these uh, great minds shared with us. And in conclusion, uh, Eckhart Tolle, you know, his great book, Power of Now, said, whatever the present moment contains, accept it as if you had chosen it. Always work with it, not against it. Make it your friend and ally, not your enemy. This will miraculously transform your whole life. So no matter how strong and seemingly logical your doubts might be, no matter how wronged you may feel by another person, it's nothing compared to the power you have to choose. These are the illusions, and if we're not consciously aware of them, before we know it, they will consume our thoughts. You can reframe, reset, and decide to make your day what you want it to be, free from freeloaders. Beautiful. And or take a walk as well. Yeah. So I'd like to share uh, a letter that we received from one of our listeners, reminding... Some emoji hearts, that's cute. Yes. And actually, uh, we usually give out the email, so you can keep sending it to the old email, or you can send it to Monica and Michael at spirituallyhungry.life. So Monica and Michael at spirituallyhungry.life. Or if you, if you remember the old email address, you could send it to there as well. We're always inspired by your emails. Always excited to read them and often share them with our listeners so you have the opportunity to share some of your light and inspiration with thousands and thousands of people all over the world. So I hope you are all inspired to send endless letters, thoughts, comments to Monica and Michael at spirituallyhungry.life. So this is a, an email from Allison. Dear Monica, she doesn't even say dear Michael, Monica. <laughs> Not offended at all, by the way. Not offended at all. I would rather write to Monica as well. Uh, dear Monica, I just finished listening to your story regarding your surgery, and it was exactly what I needed to hear. I've also lived a very active life, no regrets. As a yoga teacher, surfer, paddleboarding coach, in 2020, I had my first surgery on a broken wrist. Four months later, I popped an ankle tendon. The tendon healed after six months, and a year later, I was re-injured. I avoided surgery because of the fear, and also an MRI showed nothing significant. But I knew in my gut that something was wrong. Finally, with prayers, the right surgeon came into my life and knew exactly what was going on. He had repaired this type of injury many times and confidently knew he'd be able to put things structurally right in my ankle again. Since making the decision for surgery, I've bumped into many different opinions. Someone I greatly respected was totally against surgery, certain I could heal it alone and should avoid surgery at all costs which is what got me into this pickle. I tried the conservative approach for two plus years. Someone else told me to get a second opinion, but another person said, yay, this is great news. Another said that great healings come from surgery. My husband showed his support right away and has been amazing as I prepare my mind and body for this healing. Thank you for sharing your words and story. I feel so much connection with, you, with what you said, and I'm certain it was divinely sent to me. Mm. I'm listening to your podcast and think that you, that you two are special. I think that includes me as well. Oh, yay! yay. Thanks, Allison. <laughs> Adorable and doing great things by sharing your gifts. Also, how are you now? Question mark. And do you recommend any specific crutches or whatnots? Thank you again. Emojis, emojis. 
that's thank you, brilliant. Allison, thank for sharing you. your story. We are wishing you with a great healing uh, in your surgery. Are there any things you'd like to share with Allison? And I shared so much on the podcast. I think in terms of recovery, be patient, uh, cross train after uh, crutches. Make sure your underarms don't touch the crutch. And also, I used a scooter, which was helpful, but don't go too fast on it because it will tip over. (laughs) (laughs) Also, don't walk too fast on crutches because you could fall. But all of those things happened to me. Um, A few times. I remember those bangs. Oh, God, those Those... were hard. But, uh, But really, be patient with your recovery, be kind, and really visualize that it's the creator's hand in the operating room healing you and fixing that and and what a blessing what a blessing that we have that opportunity to be able to fix it thank you monica thank you allison as always please make sure to you already said this oh but i'll say it again (laughs) i this this part i didn't say but i didn't want to correct you please make sure to share the word of this podcast this podcast with everybody that you know with all of your friends family and go to Apple Podcasts, write five-star reviews, and again, share the word of the podcast with everybody you know. Continue this. I did say that. You said it, it again. Here we go. Continue to send I'm your questions. I'm going to cut you off. I'm going to do a Comments. <laughs> keep going. Keep going. Keep, you'll be in stereo. Uh, questions, comments, stories, inspirations, topics that you'd like us to cover to Monica and Michael at spirituallyhungry.life. Michael and Monica at spirituallyhungry.life. We look forward to hearing from you and sharing your stories and inspirations with the rest of our listeners. As always, we hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast as much as we enjoyed recording it. Stay spiritually hungry. Hungry.